We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to, the, to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, well, good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, if you're a guest, my name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And, oh man, it's a, it's a pleasure to, to have you with us. Thanks for joining us this morning on a snowy, icy morning. Um, and, and again, for, for all of you, I apologize for the, the lyrics. We'll be working on getting that fixed and all of those to be up in one place online for the next service as well. John's typing away down here, paying no attention to my sermon right now while he does that. And so that's his permission to all preach to him privately later or something like that. Um, but guys, thanks for your flexibility with that. And then also parents, thanks for your flexibility with children, just with uh, rising COVID in, in the area. It's affected a lot of our volunteers. And so it was basically just impossible to staff kids um, and maybe even unwise to do it for a period of time. So we are taking a break from kids on Sunday mornings until February. Uh, and so again, your kids are welcome in here. They don't distract us as we preach. And, uh, and so we, uh, we appreciate you being flexible with that. Uh, and then just to remind you, as, as, uh, as we continue to, to face the, the sickness and the pandemic and, and things, if you find yourself sick, not feeling well, and it might be um, a situation like that, just just take it seriously to, to help protect one another by remaining home or doing whatever you need to do to help protect others as well as yourself in that. We'd appreciate your continual support in that. Hey, a couple announcements for us, and we will get um, going here. Um, first of all, Emmaus Institute classes are kicking off starting next week. And so the Emmaus Institute is a kind of a holistic approach to discipleship that we're beginning to offer here to, at the church that offers men's ministry, women's ministry, um, cohorts for like kind of intensive discipleship, as well as classes and seminars for teaching on various things. And, and one of those things that we want to teach on is just kind of biblical theology. We want our, our people to understand books of the Bible and what those books say and what they teach us about God and what they teach us about ourselves and how they help us interpret the rest of Scripture. And so starting next week at 9 o'clock at this hour, uh, we'll be having a class going on in theater number two, which is the small theater right out this door, um, on the book of Hosea. Uh, Dr. Andrew King, who's a member at our church and a professor at Midwestern Seminary, he'll be teaching us uh, through that book. And so um, I know that might thin this service out a little bit, but if you're interested in walking through that, it's an eight-week study 
through the book of Hosea, feel free to come. You don't have to sign up. There's about 65 chairs in there, uh, and uh, you don't have to come to every week. You can come, and if you can't come the next week, that's fine, but it'd be an opportunity for you to learn and to kind of grow through that process of understanding that book, and so we'd encourage you to do that. And then on March 27th, we have another class that's starting up, another eight-week class, and it's uh, eight weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and uh, so we're really looking forward to that as well. Drake Burroughs and Lance English will be co-teaching that one for eight weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, so encourage you to consider that. Hey, on Thursday night, this week, on Thursday night, we're having a prayer gathering here at the church that's being um, led by our, um, by our, our team that is considering planting a church in South Kansas City. And so we have kind of a core group that's already being built for that. We're looking at sometime in 2023, probably the beginning half of 2023, planting a church on the south side of Kansas City, kind of near Research Medical Hospital. And, uh, and so the team that's doing that would like to lead a prayer meeting. They're, they want to be praying for us as a church, for Emmaus, and for continual um, uh, just uh, advance of the gospel here in our own part of the, the city. They want to play, pray for their plant, that God would send both of us the people um, that he needs to send us for the, his mission to go forward. Um, the reality that when they leave us, it leaves a hole here. And so for the Lord to replenish that here, as well as um, providing for them there. And so they're leading a prayer time on Thursday night. It is in the loft upstairs, uh, and it is from um, oh, 06 to 7 p.m. on Thursday night. So if you'd be interested in coming and joining that, um, please do keep that in the back of your mind because that'll actually be at the end of the sermon, something I just remind you of that I think could be actually really good application to, to today's text. And so keep that in mind Thursday night. And then also every Thursday morning, um, every Thursday morning at 6.30 to 7, our global outreach team leads a Zoom prayer meeting. Right? Every Thursday morning, 6.30 to 7, our global outreach team leads a Zoom prayer meeting where they're praying for the gospel to go forth. They're praying for the missionaries that we've sent out, the pastors and planters we've sent out, mission work in our own city and for our own church. And so um, you can go to uh, kcprayer.com is where that is, is held. You can also reach out to um, us, Emmaus, uh, elders at EmmausKC.com. Um, we will send you the, any links that you need to get if you, uh, if you forget about that. But we would love to invite you to join them every Thursday morning or as you can, 6.30 to 7 for prayer um, for the nations as well. Um, we want to pray before we jump into this text. We want to pray today for two things specifically before ourselves. We want to pray for um, a family that we sent out from our church. We call them the, the S family who live in South Asia as missionaries. Uh, they've been having a lot of uh, medical um, things uh, go on that are making it really difficult for the work that they're doing. It's hindered their ability to be um, out and disciple people. It's hindered their ability to learn language, and it's becoming really discouraging for them as well. We want to pray for the Lord's healing in that situation. We want to pray for the Lord's encouragement to them in that situation as well. We also want to pray for the Higgins. Many of you um, know and remember Glenn and Carrie Higgins who were here at our church for a long time and we sent them to Seattle to be a part of a church planting team. Glenn was like the associate pastor, the number two guy on that church plant in Seattle. Um, and through a series of events, uh, they've been out there a little over three years now. The Lord has moved upon their hearts um, for them to leave that plant in the hands of the others that are doing that. And they are moving to Northwest Arkansas uh, where he will be doing a church planting residency for the purpose of then being sent out to plant another church. And so we want to pray for them in the transition from that. A lot of grief, a lot of heartache, leaving something that they poured their hearts into for three years, but also a lot of clarity about what the Lord has for them there. 
And then lastly, I'd ask you to pray for me this morning. Um, This has been one of those weeks that has been um, one of the most difficult weeks of my life, and that's not hyperbole this week, been an exhausting week. Um, And I come into the pulpit today with absolutely nothing to offer you except the text. All right, and so um, Sam offered to preach for me today, and though it sounded good to take a break, I told him I needed to preach today. Like my heart needed to, um, to celebrate God today in the text. And so I'm going to ask you to pray for me this week, and I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to dive into this text, okay? And Jesus, we have a brother and sister and their children in South Asia today who um, in many ways are discouraged and they are hindered by health issues. God, they need your healing and they need your comfort and they need your encouragement. So Father, would you present that to them? Would your spirit comfort them and Christ, would you heal them? Would you do this so that your name can go forth as they have energy and health Um, to learn language and to have conversations and to enter into discipleship um, relationships, Father. Father, we pray today for our brother and sister Glenn and Carrie as they are transitioning from Seattle to Northwest Arkansas to continue to be trained to plant another church, Father. I pray that you would bless the church that they um, planted there in Seattle, that you would encourage it, that you would strengthen the members there, that that church would continue to grow and to reach downtown Seattle. Father, we pray for the Higgins that you would go before them in, in the midst of their, um, their sadness of leaving a place that they poured their heart into and also in the midst of hopefulness of where you're taking them. Would you prepare those days before them? And Father, we pray for our time here today. Would you speak to us through your word? We need to hear from you. We need to be encouraged by you. We need to be challenged by you. We need to see the beauty of the gospel in the face of adversity and suffering. And Father, would you give me words to speak, Spirit, preach a better sermon than I have prepared today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm excited about the book of Acts. Patrick did a great job kicking us off last week, though, and rather than introduce the entire book, he basically just said, here's the mission of the book from Acts 1-8, which is the main verse of my passage today. So um, we had a little talking to afterwards about him stealing all the thunder of my passage here today. But hey, it never hurts. If you're going to preach one passage two weeks in a row, Acts 1-8 is a really good passage to preach two weeks in a row. And some of you are kind of like, wait, did he really have a talking to Patrick? No, I didn't really have a talking to Patrick. That was, that was a joke that was probably an exhaustive joke that made no sense. So I'll stick to my notes now. Um, I'm really excited to preach the book of Acts. I've wanted to preach the book of Acts for a couple years now, and it just didn't seem to be the right timing among our elders. And, and now that we're here, I actually don't really want to start it because I don't want it to be over. Right? It's kind of one of those things, it's how you wait with anticipation for Christmas, and then Christmas comes, and you're like, oh man, it's begun, which means it's almost over, which means now I've got to wait again. Right? And I'm like, once you preach the book of Acts, how long do you have to wait till you get to preach the book of Acts again? And so uh, I've come into this with much excitement and much um, trepidation that it's almost over, which is, will happen in the end of November. Right? But you know how time flies. I'm looking forward to, to diving into this. Patrick opened us up last week by talking about the mission that Acts presents to us and our tagline as a church, which you would see if we had a screen working today, but the tagline to this series is a community on mission, right? A community on mission. Patrick told us last week what our mission is. Our mission as the church is to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And he told us last week how we are to do this mission. 
We're to do this. We're to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ through the power of the Spirit. And he told us where we are to do this. We are to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ through the power of the Spirit, both near and far, at home and abroad, in KC and in South Asia. We're to be witnesses wherever the Lord has placed us, and we're to be witnesses wherever he will send us of the resurrected Christ by the power of the Spirit. He told us last week that the mission of the church is to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ to bring healing and restoration to all creation. To bring healing and restoration to all creation. As we journey through this book, we're going to see that over and over in this book. As we open up chapter 1 today and begin to walk through this, allow me to give us a few guardrails to help us stay on the road in this series. Right, a few guardrails. You've not been used to us teaching through this long of a narrative. Right? We preach through Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and, and 2 Corinthians, all letters. We preach through John, which has some narrative and some instruction and, and some various. We preach through Ecclesiastes, which who knows what genre that is. We preach through the, the prophets, but here we are for the rest of this year, 38 weeks, we're going to be in a narrative. So let me give us some guardrails. We, number one, we cannot lose the story for the doctrine. We cannot lose the story for the doctrine. Let me explain to you what I mean. The book of Acts is a historical narrative, and there is a lot of doctrine in this book. It is rich with doctrine. But if we approach the book of Acts simply from a doctrinal mindset of what doctrine do I pull out of it, and we actually ignore the narrative story that's taking place, we actually lose much of what Acts is meant to give us. So we cannot lose the story for the doctrine. It's historical. Luke was a historian. The author of this was a historian. He's one of the most well-respected historians of the first century. Well-critiqued, well-investigated, his His um, accounts of history line up well. This is the second book he's written for us. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, which was the accounts of Jesus in his life, and now the the book of Acts, which were the accounts of the early church and what was taking place there. And he wrote it in a historical format to let us understand in detail. He actually says in Acts, an orderly account of all that has happened. So it's historical. It's like reading a history book, but it's a historical narrative. It's reading a history story. So we want to grasp the story. It's a story of doubt and of faith. A story of fear and of courage. It's a story of bold action and of waiting and prayer. It's a story of progress and of suffering. It's a beautiful story. Next, so we want to, cannot give up the story for the the doctrine, but secondly, some weeks we're going to take big chunks Right, this week's just 11 verses. That seems pretty manageable, but there's some weeks we're a chapter and a half in this book. Right? So we're taking big chunks, which means this. Um, when you take big chunks, you don't necessarily get to hit everything in that passage every time you open up the Word. Our goal as pastors is to catch the main point of the narrative story that we have there. But there'll be a lot of beautiful pieces we'll miss. So our encouragement to you is to read it, study it on your own as we go through this. I would love to to walk through that. In fact, we will put up on our social media what we're preaching each week so you can read ahead and kind of know here's this week's passage. I'll, um, I'll do that. Thirdly, the book of Acts is descriptive throughout and it's prescriptive at times. It's descriptive throughout and it's prescriptive at times. 
being a historical narrative, it's descriptive. It's explaining what happened. But not everything that it explains that happened is also a prescription of what should happen. Patrick said last week, we can't recreate Pentecost. We also can't, can't ignore Pentecost, right? It did happen, but we're not called to recreate that day again. But there are our places in it that it is prescriptive, that it does give us commands and tell us what to do, and, and it's prescriptive both in story and in instruction. At times it specifically tells us, and at times it simply illustrates what happens, which gives us an understanding of what the church could look like or perhaps should look like moving forward, even if it doesn't look exactly the same. So it's descriptive throughout, and it's prescriptive at times. With that, let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from from Jerusalem, but to wait on the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he, op- excuse me, he opens this up, addressing it to Theophilus. The same address that he gives when he opens up the book of Luke. Both addressed to Theophilus. Uh, we don't know if Theophilus is a person or if it's a group of people. The word Theophilus, the name Theophilus actually means friend or lover of gods, right? And so we don't know. There's no account in history of this person. So we don't know, was there a specific person he's writing this to and everyone happens to be reading it? Or was he writing it, writing it to all of those who are a lover and a friend of gods, right? The account of Christ and the account of the church for all who are God's friends to read and to cherish. Either way, we have a beautiful story he has written. It's the second book in his series. I already shared this. He wrote the book of, Act, or book of Luke, the gospel, telling us um, in detail about the life and ministry of Jesus. And now he picks up the story where he left off, but not exactly where he left off. The book of Luke ends, and when the book, book of Acts begins, it actually kind of rewinds and plays back the end of Luke again. And so we get an overlap in the stories. Let me read for you Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 51. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he ascends into heaven. And now we go to the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, he has not yet ascended yet. He's still with them, and he's again teaching them these last things that we saw at the end of Luke. At the end of Luke, he tells us, this is Jesus speaking. Um, Luke's recording his words, and he tells us, Jesus said that, that Christ will suffer. He quotes the Old Testament. He says, listen, it was given to us in the Old Testament that Christ would suffer, and he has, and that he would rise again, and I have. And now you will go and you'll preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. 
The Old Testament told us this would happen, and now I'm telling you to go do it. Preach repentance and preach forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus to all nations. Right? The fact that God sent his son to redeem the world from their sins, that his son lived a perfect life and did not sin himself, and then was offered on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of all who would believe, and yet did not remain dead, but rose again from the dead, so that those who have faith in him might have life. He goes, go proclaim this. Call people to repent of their sins, and call people um, to forgiveness of their sins. Repent, you will receive forgiveness. And do this to all nations. And then he says in Luke 24, I am sending the promise of my Father. I, Jesus, the Son, am sending the promise of my Father, right, which is the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity displayed here. God the Son sending the promise of God the Father, which is God the Spirit. And he tells them, go wait for the power of the Spirit and then be my witnesses. Now in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we see the same things. Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, and he was speaking about the kingdom of God when he was with them. Right? All throughout his ministry, he continues to speak about the kingdom of God, which is important in a moment. And then he tells them, go wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. So, so here's the setting we're stepping into. The scene of Acts is about to open up, right? Think of a movie. You're in a theater. Think of watching a movie. You sit down, and the opening credits begin to go. The music begins to play. And as the scene of Acts is about to open up, the opening credits and the theme song are going, and it's showing pictures of what has been happening to get us to this opening scene. I almost think like a Marvel movie where at the beginning all these different scenes are flying through, right? And, and you're seeing all these different images. And here are some of the images, the pictures that are flying through that bring us to this opening scene in the story of Acts. The pictures that we are seeing are of Jesus' life and his ministry, healing and preaching and feeding the hungry. The pictures we see are of men and women, young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, Jew and Gentile coming to Jesus. The pictures that we see are a group of 12 men who are his closest followers, his closest friends, men he is called to be his apostles. The pictures we see are of 120 disciples, those who have followed him, who have taken his teachings to heart and are chasing after him. The pictures that we see are of the lame being healed and the blind seeing and the outcasts being hugged, children being played with, and dead being raised to life. The pictures that we see are of meals with friends and of caring for the poor and comforting the hurting and crying with the grieving. The pictures that we see are of tragedy. One of Jesus' closest friends betrays him. Another dear friend denies ever knowing him. Friends fall asleep on their watch, protecting him. Soldiers arrest him. Peter loses it and cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus picks it up, puts it back on him. The pictures that we see of Jesus under arrest, being beaten, and tortured, bloodied, his beard being ripped out from his face, and his friends being missing in action, MIA, left alone. The pictures that we see are of Jesus hanging there on the tree, bloodied and naked and ashamed, 
The pictures that we see are of Jesus being placed in a tomb and a large rock being rolled over it. The pictures that we see are of Mary and John gazing into an empty tomb. The rock rolled away, and they're in amazement that there's no body there. The pictures that we see are of Jesus at a table in the town of Emmaus, breaking bread with two of his followers who don't recognize him. The pictures that we see are of Jesus appearing to a group of his followers in an upper room with locked doors and having to say, don't be afraid. The pictures that we see are of Jesus letting doubting Thomas feel the holes in his hands. And the pictures that we see are of Jesus sitting by a fire cooking fish with Peter who had denied him and Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me? Go feed my sheep. And I think it's important that Luke replays these final thoughts of Jesus again here for us at the beginning of Acts. As all these images and all these scenes are going through our mind. Because in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, we are shown how Jesus spent his life to declare and display the Gospel for the healing and renewal of all of creation. Right? The, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is us seeing how Jesus declared and spent his life to declare and display the Gospel um, for the healing and the renewal of all of creation. In the book of Acts, we get to see how the church spends its life declaring and displaying the gospel for the healing and the renewal of all creation. And in the book of Acts, we'll be challenged to consider how we are to spend our lives to declare and display the gospel for the healing and renewal of all of creation. So it matters to Luke to replay a little bit of Jesus here a little bit of Jesus' instruction, and to have had the book of Luke before this, because in Luke we learn about Jesus' declaring and displaying, and in Acts we learn about the churches. So he's catching us up, the scenes are flying by, and now the book of Acts opens up. When the book of Acts opens up, we find this. Chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on as he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is on the hillside. He's recounting to them, Hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go wait for me. And then you're going to be my witnesses. I want you to be my witnesses wherever you go. And, and as they're there, they get like this one question. It's like their last question. They've asked dozens, hundreds of questions over their ministry with Jesus. This is the last chance to ask a question. And here's their question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to do it? Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I want you to remember that all throughout the book of Luke, Jesus has taught about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. The Jews had been waiting for centuries for the kingdom of Israel to be restored. 
This is a prophecy they know. The kingdom of God will come. And in their mind, the only way for them to think about it, the only framework they have is that Israel is going to be restored to greatness. And right now, Rome has conquered them. Rome is suppressing them. And what they're waiting for is for the Messiah to come in and to rescue them from Rome. That's the kingdom of God in their mind. And think about where they're at now. The resurrected Messiah stands before them. Rome did all that she could to kill him. Rome did kill him, and he didn't stay dead. And there's got to be something going on in their minds and their hearts that goes, <laughs> this time it's different. They did all they could. He won't stay dead. It is time for the kingdom. How can Rome win if our Messiah won't even remain dead? Right? We have an immortal fighting for us. Let's go. And so here on this hillside, 40 days after Jesus has risen from the dead, his disciples go, is now the time? What are we doing about this? When do we get to go? What's next? It's amazing to me that the one certainty in life, right, we just got done preaching Ecclesiastes, which laid this out for us. There's one certainty in life, death. And Jesus had just rattled this entire paradigm for them. The only certainty had now become uncertain. And they're ready for the kingdom. And Jesus doesn't say, let's go take it. Jesus says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the timing. Don't worry about the days. Don't worry about the how. Don't worry about it. Look at what he says. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus isn't frustrated with them. He doesn't rebuke them for their question about uh, when he's going to bring the kingdom. He simply instructs them, and he instructs them with this, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about when this season will end and the next season will come. God has that under control. He says God holds the authority over all of these things, so don't worry about them. Instead, your responsibility is to wait on the Spirit. And when the Spirit gives you power, to be my witnesses. That's all you're to concern yourself with. It's all you're to concern yourself with with. In his commentary on this book, Skinner says, Jesus equips his people with promises, not schedules. Jesus equips his people with promises, not schedules. Jesus, when, how, where? Don't worry about it. God in his authority has that under control. You just trust me and go wait until I send you. Gives them promises, not schedules. Perhaps, church, you're in a season of unknown, a season of suffering, a season of loss, a season of, of waiting. And God's comfort to you today is not in how soon change is coming. His comfort to you today is in a promise. Promises like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Promises like, I am near to the brokenhearted. Promises like you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Promises like I will return and make all things new. 
He doesn't promise you when the season you're in will end, but he does promise you he will be there in the season you're in. He equips his followers with promises, not schedules. So back to the story. Jesus tells them to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the power of the Spirit, and he doesn't tell them how long they'll have to wait. Right? He's not like, hey, go back and wait in Jerusalem, and uh, tomorrow around 4.30, the Spirit will show up. Be watching for him. Look, look out the window. He just says, go wait. How long will we have to wait? Hmm. Just go wait. Just go wait. And then he leaves them. Right? He just leaves them. Hey, the, I'm, I'm going to send the Spirit. Go wait for him. And when he comes, go tell people, all right, bye. And he's like ascending into heaven, like floating up. And he's floating there into the heavens and disappears. They're kind of left standing there just staring into heaven. The disciples are going, Jesus, when are you going to flex your power? When are you going to bring the kingdom? And Jesus is like, don't worry about that. The Father has that taken care of. I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait. I'm going to send the Spirit. When the Spirit comes on you, he's going to give you power. And when you receive power, I want you to go to the ends of the earth as witnesses. Bye. And he leaves. And they're left standing there staring. Matthew tells us that while they're standing there, some of them are still doubting. Is he really the Messiah? Is he really sending the Spirit? What is actually happening here? Can you see them there standing? Jesus just leaving. The sky goes empty. Their instruction is to go wait, and they can't move. They just stand there and stare. And into this scene of the movie come two men in white robes who come and stand uh, beside them. We're told they're they're angels. Angels appear around them, which should have freaked them out. But after you've just seen the resurrected man ascend and float into the sky, you're kind of like, yeah, what are angels now? Right? Like this this is just part of the gig that we have going on. And two angels appear, and the angels go, listen, he's coming back just like this. Why are you watching? He's not coming back right now. Don't keep waiting. Like, go and wait in Jerusalem. He will come back, we promise you. And so they go to Jerusalem. There's so many unknowns here for these men, for these women, for the 120 watching. They don't know what it will be like when the Spirit comes. Jesus doesn't say, when the Spirit comes, watch for this. We'll see that when the Spirit comes, it's like there's tongues of fire resting upon their heads. That would have been really helpful to know ahead of time for them probably. Jesus, hey, when the Spirit comes, you're going to see fire on top of your heads. Don't be freaked out. It's the Spirit. He doesn't tell them. He just says, go wait. They don't know what they're looking for. They don't know what it's going to be like when the Spirit comes. They don't know if they'll know when they have the power. It's like, what if we miss the Spirit? What if he comes tomorrow and we're still waiting? How long are we going to wait? What about Jesus? Like, is he going to come again? Is he going to come back to us? Like, there's a lot of unknowns going on here. Surely some of them thought that they would have the Spirit by dinner. All right, all right, let's go wait. We'll have it by dinner. We'll start work first thing in the morning at dawn, right out. But then they're waiting. Ten days they wait. Don't you know, hang with me here, don't you know there's some Enneagram 8s in the room on that hillside? 
those really assertive vision casters who are always thinking in the future and they can't get their minds wrapped around waiting and they're just like, they're already on the mission. All right, he said to the ends of the world, okay, who's best at swimming? Who, who has a boat? Who can we get to rally this together? Let's pull the troops together. How are we going to do this? There's some Enneagram threes there who are like, wait? Like, I'm an achiever. I got to do something. Waiting feels like a waste of my time. There's some Enneagram fives there who are terrified of the unknown. They're anxious and they're worried about the unknown ahead of them. My point is this. There's probably someone there like you. Someone with your personality. Someone with your strengths and your weaknesses. With your faith and your doubts. With your sin and your courage. I wonder what you would have been like on that hill. What your response would have been like. How your faith would have been rattled or encouraged that day. There's a lot of unknowns, but there's also a lot of promises. It's a lot of promises. Wait for me to send the Spirit who will give you power. I will send him, promise. He will give you power, promise. He told them at the end of Matthew in this same account, Luke doesn't mention this here, but in Matthew at the same scene of the story, he tells us, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The angels appear and they say, hey, he's coming again. There's a lot of promises offered for a lot of unknowns in the mission. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? If the mission of the church is to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ for the healing and the renewal of all of creation, then we must do two things we see here. One, we must cling to the promises of Christ so that we will have endurance for God's mission. We must cling to the promises of Christ so that we will have endurance for the mission. Let's illustrate it with one of the promises he gives us when he ascends into heaven and we're promised that he will return again. His resurrection and his ascension give us proof of his power over death and gives us evidence of the promise of his kingship in heaven. Some of you were with us years ago when we preached through the book of Hebrews, and it tells us that he today sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf. Right? We can trust that promise that Jesus is there today praying for us in our weaknesses and in our journeys and as we carry about the mission and in our failings. He's interceding on our behalf to God the Father. We can believe that promise because he's also ascended into heaven and then promised he'll come back. Because of the promise of the angels that he will return, we know he's not forgotten us. He's coming back. He hasn't just abandoned us here. He hasn't left us here. Some of you have stories of abandonment and of being left and of um, just being in places where you didn't know if anyone was coming to your rescue. And we're told he will come back to rescue. No matter how hard and dark it gets here in the next 80 years that we have, he's coming back at some point to rescue What a promise for endurance. We can endure a lot when we know there's hope that that lot will end. His promises give us boldness, and they give us endurance. If we're going to hold on to these promises, we must know these promises, church. Which means that we have to be students of the word of God to know the promises of God for us. 
Right? The best place to know the promises of God is not just simply laying there wondering what the promises of God are and coming up with your own. It's go to the scriptures and see what he says, what he has promised you. So that looks, I think, step one is committing in 2022 to faithful attendance on Sunday mornings for the teaching of the scriptures. Step two is faithful reading or listening to the scriptures yourself throughout the week, opening up your Bible and reading, opening up a devotional to walk through it with you, opening up um, uh, the Dwell app on your phone and listening to the scriptures being read over you, that you're hearing the scriptures speak to your heart and giving you the promises. It could be like going to the Hosea class over the next couple weeks and hearing the promises God gave his people in the book of Hosea hundreds of years before Christ ascends to heaven and sends his disciples on mission. That We would be students of the word so that we are keepers, clingers to the promises of God for our endurance. Secondly, we want to wait on the, spirit, on the power of the spirit for strength for the mission. Right, so we cling to the promises of Christ so that we'll have endurance for the mission. And we wait on the power of the Spirit for strength for the mission. Church, if we want to be honest, waiting is not a strength of our culture. It's not a strength of our generation. We're very impatient people. We want success now and marriage now and healing now and that home now and that, that new experience now. We want answers to prayer now and we want to be mature believers tomorrow. We want everything as soon as possible. Waiting is hard. The scriptures call us to wait on the power of the Spirit. Waiting on God, church, is not inactivity. It is not inactivity. Next week we're going to see what does waiting look like. But it's not inactivity, it's not apathy, it's not laziness. Waiting on the power of the Spirit is not just sitting at home, ignoring everything else that God has to offer in the meantime. It's learning to rely on and trust the Spirit's empowering of your life, rather than going about each day in your own strength. Facing temptation in the power of the Spirit, sharing the gospel in the power of the Spirit, disciplining your children in the power of the Spirit, Loving your spouse in the power of the Spirit. Doing business in the power of the Spirit. Facing suffering and trials in the power of the Spirit. We need the power of the Spirit because this mission is not easy. What the book of Acts will call us to do is to be a people who declare and display the gospel for the healing and renewal of all creation declaring it, speaking of the resurrected Christ, and displaying it, living lives like Christ, which welcomed sinners, which cared for the broken, which fed the poor, which loved children, which healed the sick, which comforted the grieving. Words and actions of Christ for the healing and the renewal of all people. And this will not be easy. The book of Acts is a story of the triumph of the gospel going forth and the church being birthed, but it is also a story of that happening through and because of adversity and suffering. The whole book is about how the gospel goes forth in the face of adversity and suffering and because of adversity and suffering. God actually uses that to propel the gospel. Chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 are added to them as believers through the first Christian sermon. But they're also thought to be drunk at 9 a.m. 
right? The disciples are speaking and living in such a way that everyone thinks they're drunk and it's only nine. They're already thought to be silly for what they're saying and doing. It begins with that, and it grows from there. In chapter 3 through 4, the lame man is healed by Peter. And then pre- Peter preaches to those who have gathered around, and as he's doing so, he's, imp- he's arrested and he's imprisoned overnight and then threatened never to speak of this Jesus again. He's released and he goes out and preaches. Chapter 4, they pray for boldness and they live, um, li- they live with bold generosity towards each other. But in chapter 5, two of the followers of Jesus stand before God and they lie to God and to the church and God kills them on the spot. And there's a fear that spreads throughout the church. This is not a church growth strategy in our books for God to kill those who lie to him. But fear strikes a chord throughout the heart of the church that there is, there is power in this God. You do not play with this God. In chapter 5, they're arrested and imprisoned. And during the night, an angel opens the doors and lets them out to go preach again. And then they're arrested again. And then they're beaten for their preaching, but they keep declaring Jesus. In chapter six, adversity comes when, um, excuse me, adversity comes um, within the church when the unity of the church is threatened by complaining members and neglected needs. In chapter six and seven, Stephen is arrested and he is stoned and killed. And overseeing his brutal execution was a man by the name of Saul. In chapter 8, Saul is ravaging the church. He's breaking up families, imprisoning people, killing Christians. And the church has to flee. Christians leave their homes, they leave their cities, and they flee and go to the nations. Running for their lives in the face of adversity and suffering. And as they run for their lives, though, they don't do so silently as if not to be known. But they go forth and they declare and display the gospel as they're running. And the gospel begins to spread across the globe. Philip begins to preach boldly. Simon the magician believes the gospel, and then Philip is taken up and teleported to the desert. And he appears in the desert where there happens to be an Ethiopian man on a, on a wagon being, traveled through, uh, being pulled through the desert, and he goes and he sits on the wagon, and the man happens to be reading the scroll of Isaiah, the promises of God. And he begins to unpack the promises of God for this man, this Ethiopian on this trailer. The Ethiopian believes, he's baptized, he goes back to Africa, and the gospel begins to spread across the continent of Africa. Chapter 9, Saul is on his way to kill more Christians when Jesus shows up, and a light from the sky knocks Saul off his horse, blinds him, and asks him why he's persecuting him. And then Jesus tells him where to go and says, you will suffer. I will show you how much you will have to suffer as my follower. So then the suffering comes. Chapter 9, Saul, now named Paul, is preaching the gospel in Damascus, and they try to kill him, and he barely escapes. In chapters 9 and 10, Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. The word speaks, the word spreads, the people began to gather. The Spirit falls on the Gentiles and the Jews. And as the Spirit falls on the Gentiles, the Jews have a hard time understanding how the Gentiles could receive the Holy Spirit. And the church is confronted confronted with racism, with nationalism. This promise of salvation, this promise of healing and renewal is for all creation, not just the Jews. Chapter 12, Herod begins killing Christians, including James, the brother of John. 
Then he arrests Peter and imprisons him, and he's waiting to kill Peter, but an angel breaks Peter out of jail. Chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out on mission with the gospel, and it spreads when Paul is stoned and left for dead. So they stone him. They think he's dead. They leave him. Hours pass. He gets up, wipes off the blood, brushes off the dust, goes back into the city and preaches again. Chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have a strong disagreement. This happens in the church. They have a strong disagreement, and they separate. But as they separate, they go different directions, declaring and displaying the gospel. And the gospel spreads. In chapter 17, believers are drug out of their houses and put on trial for, quote, turning the world upside down with this gospel. In chapter 17, Paul is mocked. In chapter 18, there is a united attack on Paul. In chapter 19, Ephesus is turned upside down for the gospel. Sinful vocations are going bankrupt. Prostitution and sorcery and all these things are closing down because the gospel is sweeping over the entire city and a riot breaks out. I have in my mind pictures of the riots we've seen in the last couple of years here in the United States and riots breaking out specifically because the gospel has transformed communities. Riots break out and and we're actually told that prisoners have to guard Paul's life because the mob wants to kill him. In chapter 21, Paul's arrested in the temple and the soldiers protect him from the mobs. In chapter 23, there's a plot to kill him. In chapter 24 through 26, he's in prison and defending himself in court. In chapter 27, he sails for Rome to defend himself before Caesar, before the emperor. And his ship crashes in a storm. And by God's grace, he makes it to shore on Malta. And then as he's there warming himself by a fire, he gathers some firewood and a poisonous snake leaps out from the firewood and bites him. What a day. But it says that his arm doesn't swell up. The poison takes no effect. And the residents of Malta look at him. And because of this miracle, they believe in Jesus. He declares and displays the gospel to them. In chapter 28, the letter ends, this historical narrative ends, with Paul in prison awaiting death. And throughout all of this, it wasn't only Peter and James and Paul who suffered, but hundreds and thousands of Christians who suffered and were imprisoned and were beaten and were killed for their faith in Jesus. The church and the mission of healing and renewal of all creation spread in the face of adversity and suffering, and because of adversity and suffering. In his recently released book, Patrick Schreiner, um, he has a book that just came out last week on the theology of Acts, and he quotes the rapper Drake. And in his quoting of Drake, um, in his song God's Plan, which for the parents in the room, it's not a Christian song, don't listen to it on the way home with your kids as an illustration. Um, Just a little disclaimer for you there. But in this song, Drake says this, bad things, it's a lot of bad things that they wishin' and wishin' and wishin' and wishin', they wishin' on me, bad things. I can see Luke writing this historical narrative, nodding his head, listening to that song. Bad things, Bad things. There's a lot of bad things that they wish and wish and wish and wish and on me and Paul and the church. Right? 
over and over and over again suffering, pain, heartache, loss, trials. And in the midst of it, faith and courage and sometimes doubt, sometimes arguments, but faith and courage. And the Spirit empowered them for it, church. There's no way Paul or Peter or the church would have made it through the book of Acts in their own power. No one endures that. The power, the Spirit gave them power, and they endured in the mission, and the church spread. And here we are today going, what's next? What's next? And so we wait. This is what the church has done throughout all history. This is what the citizens of the kingdom of Christ do. We cling to the promises of God. We wait on the power of the Spirit. And we witness to the resurrected Christ. Rinse, wash, and repeat until the day that we see Christ. We wait on the power of the Spirit. We cling to the promises of God. And we witness to the resurrected Christ. Emmaus is to be your church home, if this is where you want to be and to hear the gospel preached and to live in community, this will be what we're about. Promises, the power of the Spirit, and witnessing of the gospel to the ends of the earth for healing and for renewal of all creation. I pray you'll join me on that. And church, I know that as we step into it, there will be suffering, and there will be hardship, and there will be adversity. May we hold fast to God's promises by the power of the Spirit in the face of it. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we need that power. Spirit, we need we need an empowerment of grace and of faithfulness for the mission that you have for us. Would you be so kind as to bring that to us, to give that to us? Would you help us to be a people who wait? Would you help us to be a people that pray? Perhaps we begin that this Thursday with prayer meeting in the morning at 6.30 on Zoom and Thursday night as we gather and we wait in an upper room, literally, a loft, and we pray and we wait for your power. And the Father, may we be emboldened with the gospel, both to declare and to display it to a hurting, broken, sinful world that they may be healed and renewed. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, um, every week we get to conclude the message with communion. So I pray um, that as we do so today, that this would be a reminder of a promise of God to you. Right? That, that, that he has promised that his broken body and his shed blood is all you need for the forgiveness of your sins. And that because his broken body and his shed blood resurrected and is alive today and ascended to heaven, it will, he will come again and he will rescue us. Right, so let's take this as a reminder of those promises today. If you're not a believer, our invitation to you is to stay in your seat today. Don't come take this bread and this juice with us, but instead consider trusting Jesus, the Son of God who died for the forgiveness of your sins and rose again to give you life. We'd love to talk to you about that. Come and take church. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.